We obliterated his caliphate 100%. As for the Islamic State, I can assure you, one day it's going to re regain its power. Uh, but the actually armed numbers are increasing on a daily basis. ISIS has dominated headlines for nearly a decade. Even as the group's power has waned, the fear it instills has remained. In 2019 alone, ISIS saw its last pocket of territory wiped from the map, ripped from its dying hands by Kurdish-led forces in eastern Syria. And in October, U.S. Special Forces managed to chase down the group's elusive leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, finding him at a safe house in northwestern Syria, just five kilometers from the Turkish border. He killed himself by detonating a suicide vest. U.S. President Donald Trump may have declared ISIS defeated, but are they really? Despite the blows, the group isn't disappearing. In fact, in parts of Iraq, it's actively rebuilding. I'm Willie Lowry, and on this week's edition of Beyond the Headlines, we take you to northern Iraq, where we investigate the state of the world's most feared terrorist organization. In early November, Deputy Foreign Editor Jack Moore and I traveled to Kurdish-controlled Iraq. This is a place that still bears the emotional and physical scars of the caliphate. As Jack explains, it's a complicated history. When ISIS overran Mosul in June 2014, the Kurds actually had to deal with the threat of ISIS on their own. The coalition to fight ISIS was not formed until August of that year. So for three to four months, the Kurds had to hold the line and stop ISIS from encroaching on its territory. So actually they were the first defenders against ISIS after they overran cities and towns in northern Iraq. For years, the people of Kurdish-controlled Iraq lived in constant fear of falling to ISIS. And while that fear has diminished in recent years, it has by no means disappeared. Psychologically, the ISIS occupation of northern Iraq and its advances there have had a big impact on the Kurdish people, a people that have long been oppressed by Baghdad and by Saddam Hussein, and they've gone to great lengths to protect the territory that they now have in northern Iraq as a semi-autonomous region. And the military officials that we spoke to emphasised the brutality that ISIS showed against the minorities in northern Iraq, particularly the, the Yazidi people in Sinjar. So in 2014, ISIS overran Sinjar, uh, killing scores of men, kidnapping women, taking them as sex slaves, and kidnapping children and actually in enrolling them in their ranks. So when I spoke to military officials, they say, even after the death of Baghdadi and the defeat of ISIS, they will make it their primary effort to find ISIS's leaders and continue to defeat the group however they can in northern Iraq because the brutalities committed against the minorities in northern Iraq live long in their memory still, four years on. We flew to Erbil, a sprawling city of nearly a million people. It's the regional capital and has been a hub for millennia. Its ancient bazaar still bustles with energy. But just an hour's drive from the city, the threat of ISIS is very real. The Karachuk Mountains are a spiny ridge that stretches 70 kilometers throughout Kurdish-controlled Iraq. The Kurds control one side of the mountain, but on the other side, well, that's become home to more than 250 
ISIS fighters. Jack and I traveled there to meet the local Kurdish forces known as the Peshmerga. Colonel Shri was an interesting character. He was very jovial about the threat of ISIS, even though it's very serious. He would say that if you smoked, Baghdadi will kill you. Uh, he joked that his dog was called Trump. But really, he was very serious about the threat when he got down to it. And he made it clear that beyond this outpost where, it, where we were, they posed a serious threat because the Kurds basically hold the line at this outpost and they won't go down the mountain because of the steep incline. So ISIS is basically allowed to control this flat area where they have the caves and the tunnels. And all the Peshmerga are really doing now because they don't want to lose bodies is calling airstrikes. The topography of the mountain makes it an ideal place for ISIS to evade capture. Here's Staff Colonel Shrewd Barzanji explaining why. It's easy. It's too many caves in the mountain. And they penetrate the caves, they make tunnel inside the mountain. And they make uh, like a zigzag to save himself from the, uh, when the area force drop bombs. The Karachuk Mountains are one of several places throughout Iraq where ISIS is not just surviving, but thriving. The group is taking advantage of a geographic and strategic rift between the Iraqi Kurds and the government in Baghdad. There is a huge swath of land that stretches from the Karachuk Mountains in the north to the Hamreen Mountains in the south, where ISIS is growing and growing fast. We spoke to Lahore Talibani. He's the head of the Iraqi Kurdish intelligence agency known as the Zenyari and the founder of Iraqi Kurdistan's first ever counterterrorism force. The Kurds cannot move on their own. The Iraqis will not move on their own. Uh, because it's a disputed territory, most of this territory. And ISIS has recognized that and they're taking advantage of the situation. The numbers, we believe right now, um, over four or 5,000 fighters in those gaps, armed. This is not uh, including the sleeper cells they have in the cities who are, the numbers are high. It's in this gap where ISIS is rebuilding and the threat they pose is increasing by the day. The actually armed numbers are increasing on a daily basis. They have trucks with Dorshkas mounted on top of them. So um, when they defeated them in Mosul, uh, they, these people scattered, but we see them now reorganize and regroup and control bits of territory again throughout Iraq. Once again, Iraq has become an incubator for the group. Its porous borders and fractured politics are allowing ISIS to find safe havens. The U.S. dealt a significant blow when it tracked down the group's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, but that's done little to dissuade the group's members. We spoke with an ISIS prisoner who was an early recruit to the group in 2013, before the caliphate even began. Mohammed Khalid, an Arab-Israeli ISIS fighter who left his home in northern Israel in 2013 and fled to Turkey and was smuggled into northern Syria to fight the Assad regime alongside Syrian rebels. Now, when he reached there, he then, his unit then defected from the rebels to join ISIS. So we managed to get one of only you know, 60 Arab Israelis joined ISIS. We managed to speak to one about why he left northern Israel, why he went to fight for the group and get his account of why he wants to fight for this group and not someone like Hamas or Fatah. So many leadership were killed, but jihad continues. 
compared to other foreign fighters who have given interviews in the media, he does not want to return home and he does not plead for repatriation. He wants to continue the fight for ISIS. As for the Islamic State, uh, I can assure you, just in few months, not years, that's unsure about this. Yeah, See, one day it's going to re regain its power. Mohammed is unrepentant and convinced ISIS will rebuild. Despite not having any news from the outside world for nearly two years, he still clings to the group's intimidating tactics. This time it's Damascus and Baghdad, not just Raqqa and Halab. The Israeli authorities deny knowing anything about Mohammed or an Israeli citizen currently in Iraqi Kurdish custody. But we track down Mohammed's family in Umm al-Fam, a city in Israel's northern triangle. I think, who can I contact? So I have good contacts in Israeli politics with Arab-Israeli lawmakers. Particularly one is Ahmad Tibi, who I've interviewed before, been to his house, and we have a good relationship. I WhatsApped him, I was like, I just need someone in Umal Fam, be it the mayor or someone else. He gives me the number of the mayor. So I asked a colleague of mine, an Arabic-speaking colleague of mine, Mina Al-Drubi, to call and ask him the question I wanted to ask. He says, I have no idea who you're talking about, puts down the phone. So I'm like, okay, I need to just, last chance saloon, send him a message on WhatsApp in Arabic with my request about Muhammad, a picture of Muhammad. This, do you know anyone who would know this guy? No answer. So I'm like, oh no, I can't do this story because I can't prove that this is Muhammad and he's Israeli and I can't prove that this is the man that we spoke to. Later that night, I got a message from an unknown number in Arabic just saying, hi, I'm the father of the young boy. So the father, it turns out, is the doctor of the mayor. Muhammad's family hasn't seen or heard from him in several years. They have no knowledge of his whereabouts or even if he's alive or dead. So I speak to the father. I get evidence that the father is who he is. I ask for photos. I ask for date of birth, the full name of Muhammad. To make sure I'm not speaking to the wrong person because I'd already reached out to authorities about the case. And he proves everything. I was actually, I was uh, relieved that he's alive, at least. To tell you the truth, after you gave me the information about where he is now, if he was dead, it would be better for him than being in this situation. That's Muhammad's sister who asked not to be named. She says it's hard to reconcile the brother she grew up with with the one who's sitting in solitary confinement in Iraqi Kurdistan. Fun, loving, caring. Uh, he's actually the nicest person I've ever met in my life. Uh, he likes people. He likes children. He likes animals. He likes food. Uh, he draws. He has a beautiful voice. Uh, he's into arts, he's, he was into music, he was smart, he was good at school. He's just really nice, he's kind. He, he had lots of friends. Everyone, everyone loves him, everyone likes him. No one, no, he has no enemies. He, we don't know, so we don't know anyone that doesn't like him. Muhammad's story illustrates just how insidious and dangerous ISIS's ideology really is. So he's different to other foreign fighters that we see in the media 
who are asking to go home because he doesn't want to at all. And he doesn't show any repentance for his actions and for fighting for ISIS. He was proud about it. But he's similar in that he still believes in the ideology like many foreign fighters do. The group may be on its heels, but with followers like Mohammed, its twisted ideology persists. It has already replaced Baghdadi with a new leader, Abdullah Kardash. Not much is known about him, but the little information that does exist is not encouraging. So we know he's a Turkman from Tal Afar. We know him from the Al-Qaeda days, from Abu Musa Abu days. Uh, he was brutal in those days. He, he caused a lot of problems in Tal Afar and Mosul region. Talabani says he expects the group to start ramping up attacks in the coming months. Recently we saw some ISIS guys, you know, targeting the security forces mainly, but I think this guy will go back to the old roots and he will try to put fear into the people and um, to government uh, and security forces. And we anticipate in the next two to three months or maybe during this winter time we, we should see we should see some attacks conducted by, by this guy. Talibani paints a discouraging portrait. ISIS has found refuge in the cavernous mountains of northern Iraq and has already re-established a formidable fighting force. This, combined with a government in Baghdad that is stretched to the limits dealing with protests and a new leader determined to put his own terrifying stamp on the group, may be all that it needs to re-emerge. So you have that ungoverned space where conflict's happening in northern Syria, and then you have this ungoverned space in northern Iraq where the Kurds and the Iraqi forces really have to settle their differences. So it's about the politics of the region as well, not just the economics of the region. So the Kurds say that the Iraqis need to agree with us to go in, do joint operations. We need to decide that who has what territory and fix what happened two years ago. But the problem is that the mistrust and the bad feeling from the Battle of Kirkuk in 2017 is preventing that happening. Kurdish officials are working to rebuild that trust with the Iraqis. But the Kurds warned that you know, if these things don't happen, ISIS will only continue to grow in this area and use it to capitalize on the mistrust and the lack of action being taken by the Peshmerga and the Iraqi forces. So there needs to be coordination, cooperation and stronger action taken by both the Peshmerga and the Iraqi forces and the powers that are operating in these countries, but also Sunni populations need to not be driven towards the militant groups that can offer them a better life in their eyes than the lives they have under the governing forces. Thanks this week to Jack Moore, Lahore Talibani, Colonel Shrewd, and Mohammed Halid's family. We were produced this week by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines on your favorite podcast app. Oh, and leave a review for us too. I've been your host, Willie Lowry.